technology and rehab. The future is here. Powerful magnets on a person's brain can help them move their hand. Robotic seals are promoting social interaction in long-term care homes. Speech-language therapists are meeting with their patients online. Prosthetic limbs are being 3D printed. Whether we realize it or not, technology is not only rapidly changing our world, but it's also changing the way that we deliver and receive rehabilitation. These are some of the articles in Issue 8 of Rehab Inc. Today's episode shines the spotlight on the authors of these articles who are our fellow graduate students at the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto. Welcome to the Rehab Inc. podcast, where we bring stories of rehabilitation and research to you. My name is Kyla Alsbury, and I'm a second-year PhD student at RSI. And I'm Annalisa Cardenas, and I'm a second-year master's student here at RSI. Okay, well, thank you all for joining us today. We're really excited to be here virtually with all of you for the Rehab Inc. podcast. We have some guests with us today. We have five authors from Issue 8 of Rehab Inc. for this quarantine edition episode. And Issue 8 of Rehab Inc. was focused on technology, adapting the future of rehabilitation. So we're going to start by introducing our authors one by one. So first we have Alex. Alex is a first-year master's student in Rehabilitation Sciences Institute, also known as RSI, here at the University of Toronto. Under the supervision of Dr. Kathy McGilton, she's currently looking at social support and its relationship to discharge destination in older adults with hip fractures. Alex, do you want to tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write your article for Rehab Inc.? So my article is about socially assistive robots, in particular about Paro, a baby seal, and it's used as a non-pharmacological intervention for anxiety and depression in long-term care facilities. The team I'm a part of with Kathy Magilton is Encore, and it's an abbreviation that stands for Enhancing Care of Older Adults. And a lot of our work is targeted towards long-term populations, specifically individuals with dementia in long-term care. So long-term care, it's a big topic for our research and use of non-pharmaceutical interventions in long-term care is a big research area right now because a lot of pharmaceuticals can have very detrimental effects for people in long-term care. And I thought that technology is a really interesting area that's emerging as a non-pharmaceutical intervention for this population. And yeah, it's also cute robot seals. So that really interested me as well. That's great. Thanks, Alex. Next up, we have Nathan Jacob, who is a first year master's student in Dr. Robin Green's lab. He enjoys working with rehabbing to bring the stories of rehabilitation science to life. Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about your article? My article is about a rehabilitation technique called transcranial magnetic simulation. So about 100 years ago, being able to move a person's hand by placing a magnet near their brain might have sounded absurd, but now it's a reality. So I chose to write about this technique because I think it's a great example of human ingenuity in technological advancements. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Nathan. So next for our authors, we have Insia and Kai. Insia is a first-year speech-language pathology research student in the Bilingual and Multilingual Development Lab. Her master's thesis focuses on the predictors of literacy development in bilingual Canadian children. 
Kai is also a first-year master's student in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute Speech and Language Pathology stream, supervised by Dr. Monica Molnar of the Bilingual and Multilingual Development Lab. Her research centers around the effects of bilingual exposure on the linguistic and cognitive recovery of children post-stroke. So, Incia and Kai, can you share with us your motivation behind writing this article? So our article was on some of the, the limitations and the benefits of tele-rehab within the fields of speech-language pathology and mindfulness therapy. And we did this by interviewing two speech-language pathologists who conduct uh, tele-rehab in older populations. One of the, the main things that we found out in this article is that tele-rehab in the field of speech-language pathology does have its benefits, but what is needed is more clearer guidelines on how uh, tele-rehab can be practiced. Uh, yeah, that's definitely one of our motivations. We noticed that it was a topic that was interesting to speech-language pathologists. That's great. Thank you for that summary. I think tele-rehab is even more important in this day of COVID-19 pandemic, so I'm really interested to hear more about that. So last but not least, we have Vahid Anwari, who is a practicing medical radiation technologist and Master of Science student at RSI. Currently studying under the supervision of Dr. Andy Kin On Wong of the Joint Department of Medical Imaging, University Health Network. His thesis focuses on the use of MRI imaging to assess changes in blood flow inside the bone below the knee joint and how this affects early onset knee osteoarthritis pain. The use of 3D printing in medicine and in rehabilitation settings is another passion of his, where he is currently devoting his time towards. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, he has been 3D printing face shields and reusable N95 prototypes for healthcare workers at UHN. Fahid, can you tell us what inspired you to write your article? Um, thanks for uh, having me. I wrote the article because it, it was a reflection of the past eight months that I have been as a graduate student, realizing that there was one aspect in 3D printing that I had not considered before, and it was the rehabilitation, rehabilitation aspect. There is a huge need for prototyping and the involvement of robotics in rehabilitation. So given that I have had that experience with 3D printing, I wanted to give that angle and inform professionals in RSI and rehabilitation in general that there is a technology out here that could be used towards greater purposes. That's great, thank you so much. I'm super interested in 3D printing and rehab, so I was really excited that you came up with that article. So as you can tell, we've got some knowledgeable people here with us today, and they're our very own RSI students, so we're especially excited about that. So thank you everyone for being here. So let's start off with some questions. Feel free to jump in with your answer. Technology is obviously becoming increasingly important in rehabilitation sciences, so I'm curious, how would you describe the state of technology in rehabilitation today in each of your respective fields? And where do you think we're going to be in the next five years? Yeah, I think I can add a bit on that question. It's, it's crazy to think, you know, five years ahead in terms of technology, as every year there's something new that's coming out in every in every field. I would imagine that in five years we would see artificial intelligence having played a significant 
role in decision making in and daily living no matter which profession i think that and also robotics as well as microchips get smaller they get embedded in robotics i think those two fields are going to have a lot of active participation i can add a bit to that as well so in terms of speech language pathology especially in light of what's happening right now with the covid-19 pandemic i feel like a lot of speech language pathologists are now moving to online platforms and there do exist quite a lot such as jane or cisco jabber some are using zoom and in terms of therapy materials provided to speech language pathologists companies like pearson are now moving their therapy materials online what seems to be missing however and which was further highlighted in our article is actually more clear guidelines for telepracticians to follow although i'm not an expert in socially assistive robots in any way but from uh, what i've read there's a lot of potential for this research area because they can not only be socially assistive but they can be socially interactive where they help their users in pilot um reminders or appointment reminders sort of daily tasks kind of like an interactive mini computer but there's definitely a lot more research that needs to be done in this area especially concerning usability um ethics safety etc yeah i think sometimes with technology and rehabilitation there's um i don't know not necessarily different motivations but different rates of development in private industry versus in research so it does seem like these robots are pretty common place now in long term care homes but whether or not the research is is quite there yet is i guess kind of the question but i think especially with covid-19 and you know long term care homes not allowing visitors in those robots are probably providing a lot of support for the residents right now too which is interesting i was just going to bounce off what everyone said so i think something important covid has taught us is the importance of accessibility so when it comes to transcranial magnetic stimulation how can patients access this machine without going to the hospital so in the next 5 years probably the next 10 years we hope to see portable transcranial magnetic devices where patients can just put on a helmet at home set turn on a setting and then just self administer the therapy Yeah, that would be a really neat advancement and actually you're already thinking along the lines that we had with some of our questions for you because we were curious that it seems like our society is is definitely moving towards technology at a rapid pace and our question for for you as authors is how do we approach accessibility to such resources especially for individuals who may have financial constraints or less experience or knowledge with technology. I think uh, age level of education and cultural backgrounds in particular have all been identified as factors that affects acceptance of robots in daily life. I think a way to address that is to obviously involve the users of technology in technology does in the design phase of the technological pieces that are being meant for them. So that way they become more accessible and easy to understand i suppose 
especially the cultural aspect, because both verbal and nonverbal communications of robots have different interpretations by different cultures. Yeah, so the co-design of these technologies is important then. <laughs> this reminds me of something that we learned in our rehab course. Our, our group was assigned the task of the ethics of designing technology. And one important thing we mentioned in our presentation, our final presentation, was that designing technology needs to be proactive where the user is involved in the process. It's a reiterative circular process where there's constant feedback from the end user so that the designers know that their technology will be taken up and not just lost after they invent it. Oh, something that um, I noticed in our uh, interview with Sarah Ott, the speech language pathologist, was that, well, it was really impressive that she had kind of a system of complete guidance in terms of setting up the video and audio. So every step of the way, there was that kind of support for people who were getting her services. So all that tech anxiety that people might have with telehealth and telepractice in general, that was kind of taken care of. Uh, by her yeah so kind of facilitating the use of the that technology making sure that they were set up and ready to use it so it took away some of the the anxiety or concern around that right mm -hmm. just to add on to that so when we were actually looking for um, speech language pathologists interview it seemed like a lot of them were working with older populations particularly since i feel in younger populations so children there might be even more difficulties with administering online therapy since children might get distracted more easily. So I think finding a way to sort of bridge that gap by having standardized incentives. So after a child is given an, an assessment, they actually have a game that they can play and having shorter sessions. So sort of using technology to provide speech language assessments and therapies to remote communities or communities where there's no speech language clinic, but then at the same time, ensuring that children aren't tired or too distracted to participate. And that way too, I think you're, you're kind of taking away, I know some people have a long distance to travel to go see their rehab professionals. You're kind of, I guess, making the best use of time by if you have 20 minutes to focus or less, that really you're just focusing on the therapy and it's not taking up a whole afternoon with transit there and back, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's a really great point about having to consider these especially unique needs for each population that you might be working with. Yeah, I would add that one of the populations that would be really hard to get a hold of or reach out is rural populations or, for example, people that don't have really good access to the internet. We're using internet right now to do this and even in our research study, we constantly use email and you know internet resources. So I think that anyone that does not have that access, it would be super difficult to reach out to them, especially that if they cannot make it to the downtown core for appointments, that's a additional layer of complexity. Yeah, it's almost like 
I wonder if the requirement to have this sort of access to these resources that maybe not everyone has, do you think that can disadvantage certain people in terms of wanting to get that same sort of care that someone with Wi-Fi might have? Maybe Insia or uh, Kai, you can speak to this in terms of tele-rehab. What do you think that means for someone who doesn't have access to Wi-Fi? Actually, before this, me and Kai were talking about how one of the, the people that we interviewed, Sarah, she's been posting voice exercises online on Facebook or and on Instagram Live. Now, I think that is a good resource because people don't have to download any special technology. But on the other hand, for someone who doesn't have access to the internet or even a computer, how are they supposed to access, for example, speech therapy? Since, especially since clinics are now closed, the only other option is tele-rehab. It's not like there is a book that they can read on how to self-administer therapy as well. Sort of like bridging that gap between technology and then having it accessible to maybe more vulnerable populations. Right. Okay. So for Nithin, um, if TMS goes commercial, do you think insurance companies will have access to purchase receipts? And I guess by linking, linking those connections, know that you have a certain illness or a reason to use TMS, just in terms of concern for health information leak. So health information leak is definitely a concern. And if TMS goes commercial where patients just have a headset and they administer it themselves, the data can go back to the company that made it. But I think the company can be proactive and respect privacy by setting certain privacy safeguards. And one way to do this is to anonymize the data that comes in. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's one of the best ways because it's, they can't really say no to taking in data because sometimes the companies providing the technology need to access certain patient information. But for the most part, if they can anonymize the data that comes in, then uh, they can respect the patient's privacy. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about um, data safety and privacy with technology. I know uh, with the recent increase in use for Zoom in particular, there were some cases of Zoom bombing. Um, so I'm wondering uh, in your different areas of research, how data safety and privacy um, is considered for the technology? I think it would be a very um, hot topic for socially assistive robots because um, they obviously need to listen in to what the participant is saying to analyze it. So it but the data must be very heavily protected because it can be very personal information that it catches similar to like Siri or Alexa listening in on what we say. Um, in terms of speech path, so SAC, which is Speech Language and Audiology Canada, the government the governing board for speech language pathology, they do have um, a few recommended uh, HIPAA compliant um, software such as Cisco Jabber and um, Jane, but then in, for hosting tele-rehab, but they don't have a lot more resources on how to, for example, store data or share data. So when you're recording, let's say, um, a child's data on a form, then how do you save it? How long do you um, save it for? Is that is that different than um, 
when you're doing it in person? And if you have to share that data with someone, how do you do so in a safe manner? We were also looking up a couple of uh, video conferencing platforms before we started, um, just as like a research, a bit of research before our article. And we found that Zoom is actually not PHIPAA compatible. So I think there was like also a lack of video conferencing platforms for uh, speech language pathologists to be using. Even when we were, even when we were speaking with um, uh, Sarah, she couldn't really recommend any that she personally liked or personally would recommend to other speech language pathologists. Um, that's definitely an issue there. Yeah, like with a lot of them, like for example, Cisco Jabber, the one that Sashida said she's using, there is a limit to how many people can be in a session. So if you're doing group therapy, that could be a limit as well. And actually the CASLPO statement, which is the Ontario Governing Board, it hasn't really been updated since 2004. So there's definitely work to be done there. Just wanted to add that it's uh, becoming very evident now when a lot of researchers are trying to move their research um, online, especially for primary data collection, like a lot of masters, PhD students. and. Uh, it's hard to find a platform where you can, that would be approved by the ethics board, I suppose, um, for data collection. So I think we may have touched on this a little bit before when Nathan, you were talking about that sort of co-creation, collaboration aspect that we should all be implementing when we do this kind of research. And I've heard a few times that, you know, technology is rapidly changing so many different fields, including like of course, medical imaging, like surgery techniques, but yet it seems as though in rehabilitation, we're a little slower to implement these things. And there are some unique challenges to having this kind of research in rehabilitation with technology. I was wondering if one of you can speak to how maybe we can bridge this gap between having to collaborate with so many different people, including like the end users or the clients, the rehabilitation professionals, the engineers, like the computer scientists, and any thoughts around that? One effective way that I've seen is the Cybathlon event. So this event was a 2016 event where they made it a competition and the teams involved the end users, the designers, the engineers, the scientists, they all had to work together to achieve the same goal. Because of a competition environment, I feel like they were able to include everyone in the design of the technology. So in order to answer your question, how can we address this? Maybe we can have more events like uh, the Cybathlon, where we have teams consisting of the scientists, users, engineers, everyone involved in the design process. Yeah, I think the tech world does a really good job of that, right? Like there's hackathons, there's, that's all I know about. But I think they do a better job than, than rehab does. I, I can't really think of anything that's comparable, but that would be a really neat idea. I remember four years ago, we were working on a project with a bunch of engineers to design this new kind of x-ray system. And he thought that, all people have the same lung sizes. Like when I asked him, like, can you make the detector bigger? Because patients that have longer lungs, they're gonna be, their lungs are gonna 
be cut off at the bottom. And he said, well, why do you need bigger detector? Like we all have the same size of lungs. And then I had to explain to him like, no, it doesn't work like that. It's depending on the body habitus, you'll have different sizes of lungs. So that was really informative in his experience. You know, he knew what component needed to go where or what kind of software feature to highlight. But the fact that he was at the hospital and learning this was really advantageous for the end users. I think it's also important for researchers to also collaborate with clinicians who will be using these tools that we're developing just so they can give their perspective. Because at times if we develop a tool, it might be different how we envisioned it and versus how a clinician would actually um, use that tool and practice it with end users. Yeah, that's a really good point, Insia. How do you envision incorporating the perspectives of clinicians who are using your tool throughout your research? Maybe you can even include your, your master's research as an example. Yeah, so having a speech-language pathologist on board and helping us with testing gave us better insight into how we should accomplish standardized testing in an online environment, the importance of making sure that a child is not distracted, and what sorts of online standardized incentives, so such as having mini games for the child, would be important to include, along with other factors that we didn't even think of, in fact. So our next question is, in your area of research, what is the impact of using technology to deliver rehabilitation services versus having a rehabilitation professional deliver the care? So maybe Kai or Insa, you can speak to having that sort of face-to-face interaction versus face-to-screen-to-face interaction. I know I've been seeing a lot of discussion online with all of the implementations of tele-rehab instead of having them come into the clinic. There can be some challenges, but also some benefits to having it that way. Specific to speech-language pathology, some sort of assessments, such as in terms of swallowing disorders, they have to be done in person. But in terms of assessing speech fluency, those can be done online. It's just that, first of all, the user is comfortable with using that online technology. And adapting therapy materials in a way that it can be done online. So, for example, with my study on literacy skills in bilingual children, this was originally supposed to be done in person, but due to COVID-19, I've shifted my study online now. As for um, socially assistive robots in long-term care, they obviously cannot fully replace human interaction. However, a lot of long-term care facilities are very understaffed and residents may not get enough interaction from the staff members who are very overworked. And like Kyla mentioned, especially right now during COVID, they might not be getting any visitors and feeling quite lonely. So these robots can be an opportunity to sort of gain a little bit of social interaction, which can be very detrimental for their psychological state. So they can be quite beneficial in that way. I think with advancing technology, it comes out of necessity. I think we all heard the proverb, 
necessity is the mother of creation or invention. So I think at least in the field of uh, RTMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation, there's a need for delivering these therapies without uh, a technician involved, without another person involved. Even though there, it's beneficial to develop a therapeutic, therapeutic alliance with patients, I feel like there's a greater need for patients to self-administer uh, these therapies. Yeah, so some, creating some kind of um, like empowerment for the clients to be able to administer some of their own therapy as well instead of having to rely on rehabilitation professionals all the time for their treatment, if it's appropriate. Exactly. Okay, great. So our final question for you all is, uh, we're curious about what has writing an article for Rehab Inc. meant for you? As a published author of Rehab Inc., what advice can you offer for future authors who may wish to submit an article to our platform? For me, it was learning how to write to the general public because my first draft was very technical and it was kind of very dense. So going through the different stages, I learned how to present that in a way that the general public can understand without taking away any of the important topics. I agree with Wahid, and I see writing for rehab as an opportunity to take complex ideas and write them in layman terms. And I see that as a researcher, this is having the skills beneficial for grant applications. I think for me, it was a great opportunity to become more confident as a writer in general. And like both Fahid and Nathan mentioned, writing in layman terms, because to me, it seems like common knowledge. Whereas when I got my reviewers' comments, I realized how much of the explanation I was skipping that would make the information more accessible to everyone. And just to add on to that, so for me, I learned how to achieve sort of that fine balance between including enough information, but not too much that it would bore the audience or be too technical in nature. I think the reviewers do a good job of letting us know what is needed and what we can probably reword and rework for the final article. So just want to give a thank you to you guys. And I think if I were to give one piece of advice, it would be to not be scared to submit your writing because um, it can be intimidating, especially knowing that two other people are going to be reading it and judge not judging it, but that's what we think in our head. And that's what I thought in my head. But getting the reviewer's comments, it's really it really sort of changes your perspective from judgmental to critical uh, evaluation of your writing. So you get very uh, good feedback on ways to improve in a non-condescending or non-scary way. It sounds like it was a good learning opportunity for everyone, so I'm happy to hear that. And they were great articles, so you did a wonderful job. <laughs> All right. Thank you to all of our authors for joining us today. It was so interesting to hear more about your experiences and your research areas. We hope you enjoyed that panel discussion with our authors from Issue 8 of Rehab Inc. If you'd like to read more about rehabilitation, research, or the work we do at Rehab Inc., you can visit our website at www.rehabincmag.com. 
That's R-E-H-A-B-I-N-K-M-A-G.com. Until next time. Thank you.